welcome to Alive and Kicking, this week in the 90s, brought to you by the original 90s football podcast. On this week's show, Attila Lombardo takes the Crystal Palace hot seat, Mark Overmars puts Arsenal in the driving seat, and there was a couple other bits we'll talk about this week as well. But you are listening to This Week in the 90s. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. And I couldn't do this show without my own very own SAS as well. They are on the line with me here. Firstly, he is a social media mogul working on The Voice. You see his new profile picture to prove it. Um, he's a it's Borough good fan. That, it? a good, yeah, let me get the full intro out. Oh, God, sorry. He's a Borough fan. He's a Janinia. Oh, talking to Janinia, there's a post of him in the new Match magazine. Thought you'd like that. Hey, Joel Young, how you doing? Why is there a picture of Janino in the new Match magazine? I'm taking my kick hat off here and, and owing to my rivals, but they've done a special 15-page mm. poster special that's got legends of every club, and Janino is one of them. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I thought that was quite That nice. is good. Yeah. So they go by Plus, it's, you know, it's, it's less pages of editorial for them to write. Well, they don't write many, let's be honest. I could put my kick hat back on now and say, buy kick instead. It's much better for your kids. Um, <laughs> the other half of our striking Joe, of course, is a... He is a writer, he is a journalist for a new uh, outlet as well. He can talk, tell us about May United van Matthew Christ. How are you doing, sir? Have you finished the intro? I didn't want to, uh, yeah, don't didn't want to interrupt. Me. Yeah, go on. And, and one other thing already, we're not even two minutes into the show, and I think anyone with their bingo cards <laughs> out will be uh, putting a big red dot on the uh, Janino square. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nicely created by yourself as well in your, in your yeah. spare time there, Matthew. We didn't know that you had that talent as well. No, nor did I. Good, good stuff. I hope everyone's got there. So just in case, USA 94, Jeff Thomas, uh, well, a crew kit, Weggerly. There you go. There's your full house. Um, how you doing? <laughs> hey. I'm ruining the game. <laughs> ruining the game. How you doing, Matthew? I hear you're writing for a new outlet these days. You've added to your uh, already big CV. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Yeah, I'm doing some work for a website called The Sack Race, which is very much based on football management and uh, basically giving you all the latest odds and offers and news on uh, who's going to get sacked next, really. What would you have got on? What would, what would you have got on Mr. Pellegrino tonight? Well, I, don't, I don't think you would have got a lot, to be honest. I think the, the, bet, the betting now is very much on who's going to replace him. And from what I see on their Twitter feed just before we came live on air is Mark Hughes is one of the favourites, apparently. Mm. It's this, this merry-go-round of the yeah. same uh. the same people I mean I can't really complain because we've got Tony Pulis but I, I mean it's the same people round and round and round and round uh, but did Mark Hughes not bring it back to the 90s was it in the 90s that he played for Southampton yeah, or was it the early 2000s he did play for them, yeah. play for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was the end only, of the decade only scored two goals in about 50 odd games for Southampton I, yeah. I saw I, I think he was a bit yeah I think he passed his uh, jump the shark to use a TV reference um, by that yeah. point, must have been after after Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. And then Blackburn was that after Southampton, I think. Yeah, he went to. Did he finish at Blackburn? I think, I think he, he did. Because yeah. then he ended up managing Blackburn. The Wales, then Blackburn. Mm, mm. There you go. Sorry. There you go. Well, talking to managers. Oh, nice segue. That will uh, segue us into the uh, first 
topic of tonight, um, one that was brought to our attention by Sid Lambert, who will be back on the show soon. We were trying to get him on, but our schedules haven't met. So he's moonlighting. He's he, moonlighting um, elsewhere. Yes, he's on another podcast tonight. Don't listen to that one. There are other 90s podcasts as well. I wouldn't bother with them, but better less. <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about that. Let's talk about Attilio Lombardo. He's a name we haven't actually discussed in great detail here on the show, which is a good thing for us because we can delve into that. On the 13th of March, 1996, this is such an odd move um, when I was reading about it. I remember it at the time, but going back and, and seeing what happened, I was it's such a bizarre thing that seems to only happen in this decade as well. Um, we'll, we'll do a little history of and the background in a second, but the, the actual story is that he was made Crystal Palace part-time manager until the end of the season, caretaker manager, if you like, alongside his assistant, Thomas Brolin, um, as T- Palace battled relegation uh, that season. Um, an odd move. Uh, he had joined in the summer uh, from Juventus after winning the league. So let's start there. Um, Joel, coming to you first. Uh, that was a bit of a weird signing for Palace. Just come up from the uh, the old first division. Bit of a you know headline signing. Lombardo, what are your memories of him joining the Premier League? Well, I, I remember thinking it was sort of, you know, we talked about this before, you know, because obviously Ravinelli was his striking partner. And, you know, Ravinelli came to us and Lombardo went to Palace. But it didn't actually feel that unusual to me at the time uh, Palace were going through like a really peculiar spending spree I think I think they paid 1.6 for him and then they've gone out and bought people like Herman O'Reilly and Paul Warhurst and and people like that you know I think they've just gone out and tried to buy lots and lots and lots and lots of different players I think Michelle Padovano was there as well yeah um, so yeah so it was kind of like to me looking at it from outside it seemed like Palace were trying to do too much too soon you might say and then this very bizarre move to make him manager when he couldn't speak English was no experience uh, at any managerial level whatsoever how peculiar it was it was down to we'll get to the manager bit in a minute um he so he was down to Mark Goldberg we'll get to that in a second he did score on his debut though after joining from Juventus he scored an, against Everton on his debut and Lombardo was like you know the Palace fans have thought they found the new king of Selhurst Park uh, Matthew let's, let's get your thoughts on um, the signing of Lombardo first of all um, somebody maybe you thought that the likes of Man United and the bigger clubs would be in for but he headed at Selhurst Park what do you remember about it? Yeah, because he he came from Juventus, didn't he? Wasn't he yeah. in the Juventus team that won the? He was, league? yeah, league winner. Yeah, he scored league, mm, league scored. winner, and then European Cup. Was that right? Was yeah, that, yeah, no, that you're was right. Before, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, incredible signing, really. And again, it really hit me when I was doing my very thorough research earlier on this evening. How oh, just no how? Cider. <laughs> no, not the not the Monday. No, uh, no. I, I'm a true professional. Anyone that knows me would know that I would never drink. And record a podcast at the same time. So uh, no. I, no, I just had a few before we went on there. That's yeah. all. But um, any sponsors um, from Pear Cider or Tesco are welcome, though. Tesco Pear Cider, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, yeah, one point six million. I mean, what an incredible! Because this is the, the era, really, when we've spoken before about the, the beginning of the Premier League and how the first couple of seasons nothing really changed in terms of from the old First Division to the Premier League, apart from the Sky coverage. But this was the era where I think the real, I think. Uh, new TV deal had just yeah. come in in 96. So we really first started to see that transition from the uh, the old first division to the to the days of the, the European uh, superstars, the foreigners coming in. And this was very much one of those. And, and a real coup as well, like we say. Uh, he wasn't a... I mean, he, was, he wasn't at his peak, you could say, but he certainly wasn't washed up. Came from the uh, European champion Juventus and uh, found himself at... 
at, uh, at Salah's part in an incredible move, really. And then he, he came under Steve Koppel, did he not? Was it Koppel? Yeah, it was Koppel, yeah. And, and yeah, I think Koppel managed Palace about 10 times in the yeah, 90s. Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then... Yeah, did he have one of the short strains, something like four to two City, days? Something? Manchester City. That City? Was, Sorry, yeah, there you go, I'm yeah. mixed up. But, uh, yeah, he moved upstairs and then that allowed uh, Lombardo to to take over the managerial role as if there was nobody else capable of doing the job back then. I think it was a, a status symbol, wasn't it? I think it was a statement of intent, really, as if to say, you know, we've got this this fantastic European footballer and we're going to make the best of it. And, and in fairness to him, he, he stuck around, didn't he? Even though Palace went down, he... he yeah, I think he stayed there and ended up playing games there for the, sort of talky and, and yeah, 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 like he, that, yeah. So he didn't uh, just bugger off when he... I'm sure he had the opportunity to with his contract, but he... Uh, he saw it through, but um, I do. I also he remember enjoyed South London. I'm sure he probably did. But <laughs> I, I also remember fantasy football taking the neck yes. out of him ruthlessly when he came and playing the uh, Lombard, the Lombard. and, and uh, <laughs> as they did so brilliantly back then. And uh, but yeah, like like Joel said at the time, it was almost as it almost it didn't go under the radar, obviously, but it was just at a time when so many. Um, so many players were coming in like that. It was it, it, it was almost lost in the uh, lost in the midst of uh, so many players coming in, like the aforementioned Janino. Yeah, it was it was I'll fill in a little bit of the gaps of that season for Palace. So he scored on his debut against Everton. They then lost five of their next six, and they didn't actually win a home game until April, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, they went 15, uh, yeah, went fifteen games without a win between December and March, which led to new owner Mark Goldberg after a 6-2 defeat on the 11th of March to Chelsea, uh, getting rid of Steve Goffel, moving him upstairs, the easier option, and appointing Lombardo. At the time, Lombardo said, I came home last night, received a phone call, and was summoned by the chairman to me, and I was proposed to the job there and then. I had half an hour to make a decision, and it felt like being run over by a lorry. Whereas... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how he said that in his broken English, because apparently that's why... Thomas Brolin told us. Yeah. yeah. Translated for him. Well, Thomas Brolin looked like a lorry by that point, didn't he, in all fairness to him, <laughs> after his, his stint at Leeds? I mean, he'd been, he'd been such a wonderful turn at Leeds, hadn't he? No. He'd done such a good job at Leeds, Brolin, that, you know, Palace thought, oh, yeah, he's, he's the man for us. It just, I mean, I'm, I was trying to find the ins and outs of why, of all people, Thomas Brolin, and it's, it is literally a language thing. It obviously wasn't working out for him at Leeds, and they thought the only Ooh. person they could find in the Premier League who wants to get out of where he's in knows Italian because obviously he spent time at Parma uh, when he was much less uh, timber on him and was a much better time much more thought of at Europe and they yeah they got him in I don't I couldn't even find if they'd play together so I don't know if they even knew each other very well but they were plumped together surely there must have been somebody else in South East London that could have uh, <laughs> translated Italian into English surely but, but again, I think like Joe, I think like you said, he was. It's the statement, isn't it, to get these two, you know, players of their ilk at the time. Even though Brolin's stock had slightly, slightly fallen in their time at Leeds, um, it was still a statement to have them and a bit more glamour to South London. But uh, Steve Coppel said of, of the appointment, it's been a like slow strangulation where we've been drifting down the league. It was the time for a change, and view the fact that my position won't be changing. We had now missed a man who has much respect and achievement as anyone in the game, which is all well and good, but diddly squat as a bloody manager so um, I could just imagine Steve Koppel and his sour kind of accent that he always had he never seemed to be upbeat did he Steve Koppel um, so he was moved upstairs lovely lovely fella though Steve Koppel I actually drove his car once there's a story go on tell us yeah, I, I, in between jobs years ago I used to work for a, a BMW dealership down south and Steve Koppel was manager of Reading at the time and I was, was dispatched to Medeski Stadium to go and pick up 
Steve Coppel's BMW 5 Series for a service, and he was very, he was very, very nice, and he was a, was a bit of a hero of mine at United. So I, I didn't say that to him because I was as professional as ever. But it was a, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a moment for me to be driving his, uh, <laughs> his BMW 5 Series. Did, did he give you a tip? Uh, he didn't. But I remember Reading had an away game somewhere, and he said to me, you know, "Can you please make sure it's back by two o'clock or whatever time the coach was leaving?" And car dealerships being car dealerships, it was still up on the ramp by about half one, so I had to make sure it was it was back and uh, finished. And I dashed it back to the ground, and he was waiting outside for the with the coach, and I threw him the keys, and he gave me a big smile and said, "Thanks very much," and uh, that was good enough for me. Oh. But if that but if that had been me, you wouldn't have been rushing. <laughs> no, 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 you'd have been arguing over 1985 pop, but I'm not going to allow that on our. Oh, bin, on our, yeah. on our that's what Joel would have had in his. Uh, that's what Joel would have had in his CD player of his. Yeah, of his BMW of 1985. Uh, yeah, we're not talking about top of the pots. Um, so Brolin scored on his second match in charge as well. So he, you know, he led from the front there, but he had, it ended in despair for Crystal Palace. Was that the game at Newcastle? That was the game at Newcastle. Yeah, and that mm. nice um, yellow kit, very standout yellow kit Palace had that season. Um, but the one with the blue stripe and the red TDK? Correct. You're all about the sponsors lately, aren't you? We talked about... Sorry, the blue stripe and the red TDK. Yeah, yeah. 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 You're all about these sponsors. Did you see the thing I did on Twitter about who is the classic sponsor of your club? You did that a while back, didn't you? Yeah. It was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was that was quite... And so Because for Palace, I would have said Virgin. Virgin, easily. Yeah, definitely. I think. Um, who did you have in Middlesbrough? Ramsden's? No, Ramsden's is the sponsor at the moment. Oh, yeah, that's what um, I my mind. Sell, the one that you can see yeah. from space. Yeah. That's... yeah. <laughs> and I, I, we struggled or... with Borough. I, I, people said Gazette, people said Selnet. Um, I, I sort of said Selnet, yeah. Selnet, or maybe ICI, but I don't know. But there's, there's loads of random ones. But, I mean, obviously, for United, it would be Sharp. Sharp, yeah. Yeah, definitely Sharp. Yeah, I always say Guinness. Yeah, I think I think overall it would be Guinness. I mean, in my era, probably classic FM because of the season we had in that shirt. But it was only one season, so yeah, it would probably be Guinness because everyone everyone loves the Guinness shirt of the of the early eighties. Um, did that did, did that Guinness freedom by Wham? Yeah, Wham video. I was going to yeah. say yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have that. Was that not around eighty five? Uh, that was a bit earlier. 84, uh, end of 84, yeah. Joel is our resident George Michael expert, so I will not doubt him on that. Andrew Ridgely has yeah. also had to part with that for the rest of his life because he's not even a QPR fan. He was just given to him to wear on set, I believe. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, apparently he's always denied that he's actually a QPR fan. It was just a shirt that was there at the time. Well, they are from up near, they are from sort of Bushy, aren't they, yeah. which is up near Watford. Maybe she's just living in denial. Bushy. I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, that's the story. Anyway... Finishing up on Lombardo. I love a tangent when we go off on one. Um, <laughs> they were they finally got their uh, only home win of the season against Derby, which Lombardo was charged. It was April. It was amazing. They only had home win to, uh, uh, to the April of that season. Uh, but they were relegated with a 3-0 defeat to Man United. Um, he lasted 47 days and it didn't actually last the whole season. Ray Lewington took over the last three games of the season. He became a player again. Um, Crystal Palace went down with Barnsley and Bolton, which was the first time the three promoted sides uh, went down uh, from the Premier League. As you guys mentioned, he did stay on for the next season um, in the first division under Terry Venables, but then left as Palace saved all their pennies, went on to went to Lazio and won the league and cup double with them. So he, he sort of... Twit bookended his time at Palace by winning the Serie A. So it's such a bizarre move in the career of somebody who did so well and achieved so much in, in the Serie A. 43 appearances in all for Palace and he was included in their Centenary eleven in 2005. So I don't know if that would still be the case. I imagine so. Do you think you get in a Palace eleven, Joe? Still? 
What? What in a palace all time? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're probably asking the wrong man, really. I know, just, you know, yeah. but I, I, I can't particularly um, imagine so. But I'm sure, I'm sure that his loyalty probably would mean a lot. You know, I mean, when Borough got relegated, they all couldn't wait to leave. You know, they were all... I mean, they couldn't wait to leave when we were in the Premier League, let alone down in uh, Division 1 in the 1990s. So, yeah, I I would imagine his loyalty actually probably meant a lot more than anything else, particularly, and the fact that he was a big marquee signing, probably at that time. He's certainly the biggest foreign import I can imagine they would have had up to that day. What's interesting about that also is Terry Venable's went in would that not have been his first job after Euro 96 I think it was yeah, Cause he, he, yeah they tried to get him at that point in the season which was probably another reason why they ended up giving it to Lombardo because they couldn't for whatever reason maybe that was something to do I couldn't find the actual sort of reasoning behind that but maybe something to do with the backlash of the England job or some sort of paperwork involved in there uh, but yeah, I think that would have been the first. Uh, that's one I can remember because he didn't go to Borough. Until well, he went that, England, yeah. England, then Australia. Oh, of course, the, the yeah. Socceroos, and then he went to Palace, and then he came and saved Middlesbrough from relegation, and then oh. he went to Leeds, and he that held, was the end. Of that. He held Brian Robson's hand for a little while, didn't he? He really did. We, <laughs> yeah. we can't we can't mention uh, Terry Venables without someone making some kind of accusation about alleged dealings. Alleged, yeah. yeah. Well, I haven't mentioned um, player managers as, as well, which is something that you don't see in the modern era. I think we, me and Joel spoke about that before because obviously we, we can't mention player managers without talking about that Brian Robson photo as well. Which That's be, another one for the bingo card. Definitely that one should for the yeah. bingo card. But, yeah. but just to finish up, I might get Matthew's two penance on this because I don't know if we've had this discussion. Where are your thoughts on player managers? Because it's, a, again, a dying breed, dead breed. We don't see them anymore, do we? No, it is a dying breed. And I did a piece about this a while ago and I just think that clubs just... I mean, years ago, a player manager, it was the sort of bridge, wasn't it, from a player that was coming to the end of their playing career and uh, going further in their career as a manager. And, and clubs will often take a bit of a punt and, and give somebody a, a chance as a player manager, quite often with great results. If you think of Kenny Dalgleish in 85-86, uh, his first managed, uh, first season as player manager and Liverpool won the double and uh, probably a, a couple of other good examples as well. But I just don't think clubs now have got the patience or they, they, they can't take the gamble really to, to give maybe a player manager two or three years that they probably would have needed to, to get a feel for the, the position it was it's, now it's all very much about instant uh, instant success instant results isn't it and um, we've asked this question before is it something to do with your UEFA badges coaching badges as well yeah yeah it's, yeah, so you wouldn't have. I mean, then you kind of learned on the job, didn't you? Yeah. You have, yeah. To, whereas I suppose now you could take your badge as a player, but I suppose only the only those dedicated enough uh, would do so. Whereas now it's almost like I, I said this in the in the piece I did a while ago. The player, the equivalent of the player manager today, is almost just your Guardiola and your, your Klopp type character, isn't it? Someone that's obviously old, too old to be a player, but they almost live and breathe every every kick on the sideline rather than doing so <clears throat> doing so on the. Um, on the pitch so it's I think players now they come to the end of their career do their badges and then they go into management as very sort of young men compared to years ago when they would have been in their managers were mostly all in their sort of late 40s 50s weren't they so I think I think the game's changed but I there's there's been a few exceptions I think I think it's now and again you see the odd player manager crop up usually in the lower division lower leagues, player. isn't it yeah Edgar David's famously at Barnet um, but it's it's very rare and uh I just think I think there's a lot to lose for both player and and club to be honest mm. indeed so. well that's draw a line Oda and Talia Lombardo the, the, the bald eagle of Crystal Palace um, he, that was his time 
uh, in the hot seat lasted 47 days um this next section is not gonna be great for matthew but we'll, we'll get through it um there weren't many moments in the 90s May United that you don't like to look upon, but this game in particular was one of them. A famous game in the title race of 1997-98. Probably the crucial game in all. Um, happened on the 14th of March 1998. Arsenal headed to Old Trafford. Uh, nine points behind Man United, but three games in hand. Uh, big title uh, decider really in the end. Mark Overmars the winner. Um, straight to you, Matthew. What are your memories of this famous game? Well, when we discussed this and we said we were going to be talking about it, my first reaction was it was the game that basically won Arsenal the league, yeah. which ultimately, in hindsight, it did. But then when you look at the league position, like you just said, nine points clear, three games in hand. Obviously, this was a bit of a six-pointer because Arsenal picked up, took three points off United. But even so now, if you were six points behind with two or three games in hand, you still wouldn't say, oh, it's done and dusted. No. And the interesting thing is, I was reading about this, was after that win, Arsenal were, only, went, uh, were 9-2 to two to win the league, whereas United were still 4-1 to one on. So, in terms of the bookies and, and people looking on, United were still red-hot favourites to win the league. Obviously, the point is that they didn't win the league, and Arsenal did. So, it was a, it was a, a seismic shift in the title race. But I still think now, the, the, I just remember the reaction of the result at the time. It was almost like, that's it, the league's won, and, and it's all been... Confirmed. I mean, we can't talk about this game without mentioning the classic shot of that bearded guy with the, the shaggy hair and the yeah. way and going going nuts. And he made a he made a career out of yeah. it. I think for the next ten years, every time uh, Arsenal played United. But I just I was just surprised that there was so, still such a big gap because like we've seen in in, years, in years since, if you're six points off the top. You could, you've still, even if you've got games in hand, I mean, the classic, the 91 92 season, United were always off the top, but they always had two or three games in hand. And ultimately, they didn't win the league. And as I think Alex Ferguson said at the time, points in the bag are always better than games in hand. So it just, it just seems funny how we look back on this game as though it was, uh, it was a title decider, which it, it wasn't, was it? I mean, the first week of March, 11th of March, there's still a lot to play for, but. I suppose ultimately it did prove to be pivotal and uh, and and uh, Arsenal did win the league. The other thing I remember about it, and I don't know if you remember, do you remember Peter Schmeichel came up for a, a corner in the dying seconds? Yes. United were pushing for a, an equaliser and then he had to peg it back yeah. to, uh, into his goal as Arsenal broke and he and it comically pulled a hamstring and, and sort of hopped about 50 yards back to his uh, penalty area. I mean, he was always a bit of a ham Schmeichel, wasn't he, when he was injured or something happened. He always made the most of it, but I do remember that vividly and uh, it was one of those moments that everyone probably watching was cheering as he as he pulled up he pulled up lame running back and, and ultimately he was out for about, well, a good six weeks, I think, and, it, and uh, United had an important European semi-final in the the week after, I think, or a couple yeah, of we'll weeks get, yeah, after. No, a couple of few days. We'll get to that in a minute, don't you worry. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matthew mentioned there, Joel, that it wasn't the title decider, but do you think it was the Titanic shift in that race and the momentum yeah, went with Arsenal? Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. You know, there's lot, lots to be said for momentum and form. And, and the fact, I don't even think Arsenal had scored in the Premier League. No, at Old first goal. In the Premier League era. So it was kind of like, oh, we always do Arsenal, we always do Arsenal, we always do Arsenal. But even, you know, it, momentum's a, a massive thing. And, and once you get it, and or if you fly in high and somebody comes along and beats you at home, then suddenly you can find yourself totally at sixes and sevens. And how many times have we seen that down the years with with different teams? Um, but yeah, I mean, the Overmars thing, Gary Neville still says, 
he thinks that Overmars was probably the best direct opponent that he that he played against. He definitely says that that Arsenal side was the best domestic team he ever played against. Mm. Um, I was going to say that. Know, I mean, just... in terms of wingers, and because I think he gets overlooked, Mark Overmars, because Giggsy is obviously, you know, when you do a Premier League best eleven, he's the one. But Overmars has got a shout, even though the shortest stint, hasn't he? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and you know, you don't. He won everything when he, you know, everything domestically when he was here. That uh, not the League Cup, but certainly the other two. Um, and he was a big glamour signing as mm. well when he came over. I mean, he was another one that one of these mystical names that you heard so much about, and you know, and then oh, he's gone to Arsenal. Wow, wow, wow. And he really was an important part of that that team. Like, unbelievably, uh, you know, scorer of important goals as well as as well as great goals. You mentioned that team, the Arsenal team that day. We we, met, we talked about this last week how it how it changed in that sort of '98 team. Other than the goalkeeper, because I didn't realise Alex Manninger played in goal. Uh, that day, not David Seaman, but outside of him, you look at that team, Dixon, Adams, Keown, Winterburn, Parler, who obviously vastly improved under uh, Wenger, Petit, Vieira, Overmars, Burkamp, Christopher Ray, which are all of us, you know, some of all parts <laughs> and everything, um, but who was replaced by Anelka in the second half and set up the goal. It was some beast of a team, but then so was the United one, Schmeichel, Neville, Berg, John Curtis was not, was, was obviously not somebody who did quite as well, but Erwin Johnson, Phil Neville, Skulls, Beckham, Sheringham and Cole. Uh, one name, Matthew, that sprung up me there came on for John Curtis, Ben Thornley. There's a name from the past who played in that game. What do you remember about Ben Thornley? Yeah, I think he was he was a, probably just before the class of 92. I remember him being at United in the early, early mid-90s and sort of being... I, I don't think he was part of that famous picture of the class of 92. No, Terry, Terry, Cook, Terry, Cook, yeah. Terry Cook was on the end, wasn't he? But yeah. I think he was he was of that sort of ilk. There were certain... You obviously had the household names of that era that everyone remembers, but then there were certain players that were on the cusp that you would you would quite often see in a League Cup game back then because Ferguson loved uh, bringing these youth players through in the League Cup. So it, it was quite a familiar name to, to people who were watching United at the time. But obviously now you'd look back and say... He didn't really cut it, but um, yeah, he probably. I'd be interested. I haven't, I haven't looked, but it'd be interesting to see how many appearances he, mm. made, he made for United because he certainly he was certainly on the cusp and uh, was obviously nine, thought of nine appearances for United. Yeah, well, nice one. Good, more. That was quick. Yeah, yeah he, he, he must have just been that, the sort of player that was always knocking on the door. But at the time, with such competition there, um, never really got the opportunity, which was obviously unfortunate for him. In the same way that maybe Terry Cook. Things didn't work out for Terry Cook, but um, no, I certainly the name certainly uh, rings a bell more so than yeah, warrants it more than nine games. I would have thought, but obviously, uh, obviously not. I have horrible memories of John Curtis at QPR, who was well, I don't mean Man United. He was never obviously a first team rather than this game, but he was way past any sort of best than. I'd ever seen him. He was one of he'd probably go in a lot of keeping off fans' worst eleven, um, unfortunately. But he played in this game and again was one of those on the cusp as well at Man United. John Kurt. I think he resides in America now. Um, actually, um, I did also read that Mark Overmars nearly joined Man United in 1996. Um, that would have been even more wing play for uh, United. Where, uh, as I asked Joel Matthew, I mean, Giggs is obviously leagues apart, but he is really the number two left winger. Would you say in the Premier League all-time eleven? Yeah, one of those. That's why it's interesting why Ferguson would have been so keen to sign him because you think, you know, he kind of not had any, not had faith in gigs. So maybe he just wanted to have competition for places. Maybe, uh, maybe have two two wingers in that position or or, or swap them around. Maybe, but um, yeah, you'd certainly you'd certainly want him in your team if you could. And um, it'd be interesting to know why 
I'm not sure why he didn't go to United. I don't know whether it came down to money or maybe he wasn't sure he was going to get a game regularly with with gigs there. But um, yeah, he was a he was a beast of a player, wasn't he? And uh, as was proved in that game, because it was a it was a great little finish, wasn't it? If you were about ten minutes to go, and he sort of broke free, didn't he, and managed to slot the ball under an advancing Schmeichel. So uh, he he had it all really. He did, yeah. It's the little header he does as well to put it under control, yeah. which you don't really sort of you wouldn't expect from a player like that. But um, no, a great goal, a set up by Nicholas Nelker out jumps. Uh, I think it's uh, David May actually who come on as sub. Um, final point on this: you mentioned the team there, Joel. Where does Arsenal this team rank for you? We took, we look at the City team that obviously are going to stroll to this title. Where do they rank for you, the teams in, of the Premier League era? I think they're below the other Arsenal sides, obviously. The Invincibles, yeah. Yeah, um, but they're certainly up there. You certainly put them up there in, in, you know, top ten if not top five of you know the the Premier League era. If that's not dominated just by Man United, City, and um, you know the Invincibles, Arsenal side, the Chelsea sides. But yeah, just a very sort of. It was when we were still sort of dazzled by uh, Arsene Wenger, really, and it's when his first flourish was was coming to fruition, isn't it? Um, so yeah, just a, a very spectacular side. They used to come to the Riverside and just thump us all the time, you know. So I've never got any happy memories of Arsenal. You know, they, I think they came and beat us six or seven one in the FA Cup one time. You know, so did they, always, did they spank you? Did they? Oh, absolute that, battering! Yeah, and then what spank. happened? Is I got <laughs> I got stuck in the uh, turnstiles. I, I had a backpack on. And I got stuck in the turnstiles for about five minutes trying to leave the match early to be pelted with like pints of beer and stuff like that. But enough of my bullying at the hands of the Borough Boot Boys. Oh, Ken, Ken Moncow's just followed us on Twitter. There you go. Oh, that's that's good. Oh, that'll be a future guest of the podcast, no doubt. There you go. It's literally just happened. Live tweeting followers. There Live you go. tweeting followers. Yeah, that's there you good. Go. Ken yeah, Moncow. Ken Moncow, yeah. He's only got 821 followers. Mark Schwartz. Has just got on Twitter as well today. Oh, we'd be a good one. Let's, let's harass him a little bit then. Yeah, um, we've got Robbie Bothering. Elliott as well in the uh, in the pipeline, so that should be that should be coming your way soon. And Rob and Rob Lee. Hopefully, if friend of the show Mick Conlon, who's um, he does a lot of work for my other Moonlighting podcast, uh, Gorilla Position, he's helped us out on that, and he also helped us get as along with Joel uh, Alexi Lalas on the show. So yeah, if. Mick works his magic, might get Rob Lee. Um, and talking of previews, this isn't the only show that will drop this week from Alive and Kicking. The much-previewed Man United documentary yes. episode is going to drop at the end of the week. It's edited. We've spoken to uh, one of the youth team players who appears in the documentary as well. All to come later this week on Alive and Kicking, so look out for that. Um, so good. We're still, yeah, Joel can't wait, and I mentioned that in the, in the intro as well. It is, I've listened back to it today. It's a funny, funny listen, so make sure you get downloading that on your podcast weapon of choice. Um, sticking with Man United, and it wasn't a good week uh, for the Red Devils, as Matthew already touched on. They had a European date later that week as well, 18th of March, 1998. It was against Monaco, um, a Monaco team um, with some familiar names, with, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, what did make me laugh about this when I mentioned it to Matthew, he couldn't quite recall this Champions League exit. Um, have you caught back, caught up now and remember this 1-1 draw that ultimately led you going out on away goals? Do you remember now? Yeah, yeah, I racked my brain for all of uh, a couple of minutes and uh, it all came flooding back to me. But it was... This sums up United in Europe in this this period, and it's probably not really a surprise that I forgot all about it. Because despite being a really really good team, which we obviously know they were, and dominating at home, they really failed to make hay where the, when the sun shined in Europe. I think back then, and um, 
this was another example of that. I mean, they, they advanced to the. Would this have been the which round was this? The quarter quarterfinals. Yep, yeah, it was yeah. the quarterfinals. So they tended to do that. They tended to to get. I remember them getting to the semi-finals and playing Dortmund. Was it in '97 and going out, and then they went out in this game. And and it's a period that I think Alex Ferguson. I know the fans sort of regret it bitterly, and I think Alex Ferguson knows the club really had an opportunity to to win more European Cups than they did. Um, obviously, they went on to win it the following year. But they, there seemed to be a lot of these occasions where United would go up against teams. Uh, I remember them getting knocked out by Porto a few years later. Yeah. As well, where they'd go up against these teams that I think people expected them to beat. And then they always seemed to slip up, particularly at home. They're, they're quite prone to letting in an away goal. Maybe the way they played, they were maybe a little bit naive. We, we spoke about this before. It took United quite a while to get used to playing in Europe. Once they won the league, uh, even though they'd won the Cup when it's Cup uh, in 1991, after they'd won the fir- that first Premier League in years, they tended to go into Europe a bit gung-ho. And there are some classic examples. The Galatasaray game where they got put out. And they and the, the foreign players rule took its toll as well with, with the amount of play, uh, Scottish and Irish and Welsh players that United had. So they, it did take United quite some time to actually learn how to play in Europe, I think. And they tended to go into games rather like they did in the Premier League, all guns blazing, and they quite often uh, letting a goal at home, which is what did for them in this uh, this tie, because they got a nil-nil away, uh, which was always a good result in Europe, even though that wasn't didn't seem the case in Seville the other week. But um, And then they let in a, uh, a goal at home or an away goal early in this second leg, and then they were forever chasing the game they got they got a goal back through Solskjaer but um, it wasn't enough and without Peter Schmeichel who had pulled his hamstring running back from the uh, Arsenal goal a couple of weeks before or a week before um, they crashed out of Europe once again mm. uh, the, the Monaco team is full of an eclectic set of names Joe I don't know if you've seen this because you, you always point out the names as well but there are some, there's some big names. Obviously, David Trezeguet, a young David Trezeguet, scored the goal after six minutes. Um, but also a team boasting the likes of Willy Sagnol, who was, went on to play for France. Um, Ali Benabia, who played for Man City, if I remember yeah. rightly, for a yeah, little spell. Yeah. Um, John Collins, a young Thierry Henry uh, and Fabian Barthez. And one Frank Dumas, who who's somebody I completely forgot about until I saw his name appear on this team sheet, went to Newcastle. Um, yeah, I think 99-2000 I may have just crept into the next season as well um, looks a bit like a hobbit as well <laughs> from the Lord of the Rings um, these are players that I, I don't think in this modern age we get to see week in week out again as Matthew mentioned naivety underestimation what do you reckon of this this Man United era for, in Europe before they won it well I always remember that, that when I, th- I think when United won it for the third time um, Alex Ferguson had a conference and, and said it feels right now Three feels like you know. Obviously, three is three is more than one. Maths fans, it's the magic number. Uh, but he's, he, but you know, he said three. Three looks better. He said we're up there with Ajax now. But it was always such a hoodoo hanging over them. I think that it was kind of like you know, it seems ridiculous now. But it was kind of like whatever Ferguson did at home, he was always going to be judged on whether he managed to win a European Cup or not. And I think he he himself thinks they probably should have, uh, you know, later on won more. Then he shouldn't. And it's like Matthew says, you know, they probably had chances. You mentioned the Porto game there, the, when we Mourinho first properly came to all our consciousness, really. Um, but yeah, there, there was always that who do. But just everything Matthew said, the for, foreign players rule, um, and the fact well, that had, they just 
the English clubs had been out of Europe for so long yeah. is, is that we'd we'd fallen right behind, I think, as well. And um, and then once we once we got up to speed with everybody else, then you know we were doing very well. But for United, uh, it was harsh. And then there was the one year they missed when uh, when Blackburn won it. So and was that the Roto Volgograd year? Yeah. Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. Ninety five. Yeah. That. Um, yeah, no, that was yeah, that, scored I, in that one. Yeah, no, that was a UEFA Cup game, I think. Yeah, 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 because no, yeah, they yeah, because they'd come UF second and yeah. Blackburn were in, yeah, Blackburn were yeah. in Champions League. Mm. Yeah. Well, United were missing yeah. Keane, Pallister, Schmeichel, and Giggs for this match as well. So it was by no means not a full strength United, and they also lost Neville and Skulls during the game with injuries. So I mean, not that we're looking for excuses, but they were. It was a slightly depleted Man United team, despite the fact that you still had the likes of Beckham, Skulls, Cole, Sheringham, Solskjaer playing. And again, I'm going back to you for another name from that era that we probably never talked about on here, Matthew. Michael Clegg. He's somebody else that was of that era, the yeah. Ben Thornleys and the Terry yeah. Cooks, wasn't he? I think for Michael Clegg, Reed, Ben Thornley. Yeah. And it's Terry Cook. Sort of, I know. It's the same sort of, that sort of next class, not quite the class of yeah. 92. It was kind of the next class that weren't quite as good, were they? I think again, it's just it's just bad time. I mean, in any other era, these players would have probably been decent young players coming through. But when the when you've got such competition for these places, with, you know, you've got the two Nevilles and, and obviously Giggs and Skulls and Butt and everything else, you you're really not going to get the opportunities that you would at other clubs. And um, rotation probably wasn't as big a big a thing as it is now. I mean, you did get the League Cup games with the Fergie loved to play his, his kids in but I mean now you'd probably get these younger players get more of an opportunity as, as managers love to rotate in especially in the FA Cup and maybe the odd European game or the odd league game going prior to a European weekend uh, Europe, European match day so just 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 bad luck for these guys I suppose Mm. We, well, Chris Chris Casper was another one of those and we spoke to him yeah. as well before on the show go back into the archives and uh, listen to that um, we also there's a little Fulham link to this game as well, which I didn't want to I wanted to mention in case any Fulham fans are, are listening because not only did John Collins play in this match as well, who later went on to play with Fulham with Collins John, one of my favourite football fables. Um, John Tigana was the manager as well, who would go on to manage Fulham very successfully and get them in the Premier League eventually. Look like they're on their way back this season too. Um, the only other we'll take we'll go off Man United now and give Matthew a rest from that one misery week in the nineties that they had. Um, that I don't remember. That you don't really remember on purpose. Um, <laughs> they were... the, the memory is a very funny thing. You just remember the good things and it erases all the bad. No, I think it was more to do with being about twenty-two years of age and more pessimistic. Going out in the, in the mid nineties and going out drinking too much. So. Uh... Yeah, I put it down to that. Hashtag pear cider. Um, the only yeah. other little because it wasn't. But it was called. Uh, it was called baby sham back then. Oh pear cider, dear. I think wasn't it? That's basically, <laughs> the, basically what pear sham. Basically what pear cider is. It wasn't hooch, was it? It wasn't a pear version. A perry, was it? Was it a nice uh, perry? <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. A hooch was. Hooch has made a comeback. I know. Has I saw it? it. I saw it when I was in last in yeah. Newcastle, and it tasted foul. Yeah. Absolutely I was gonna say, disgusting. It's big, it's big up here. I don't know whether it's. Uh, my brother lives in London and he came up here a while ago and he was shocked at the amount of bars selling hooch. Yeah, I don't think it's reached us down here. I think it's, yeah, it's stayed up that way. But I'd had it for the first time since I was, yeah, in my youth. Well, the last time I was at Newcastle for a stag do last year. And yeah, I've forgotten that it didn't taste very good. I think I you, need, love, you need I a box of like... Rennies with you for it. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. The, the blackcurrant one was lovely, but I don't know if they've, they've rehashed the blackcurrant one or not. I don't know. That was such a 90s drink, though, wasn't it? Such a mid-90s drink. At the first Alco just... pop. 
Wasn't yeah. it surely the first alcove pop before? Yeah, yeah. No, there was. It was. There was such an outcry about it, wasn't it? Yeah. Saying how people were going to, kids were going to get hammered, and, and basically they did. Hence, I can't remember that yeah. European Cup. I will testify he's some, to that. He's some booze for kids that don't like the taste of beer. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> there that, you go, that was genuinely me. Out. It took me a long time to get to used to the taste of beer. So that was yeah, thank you, Hooch, for that. Then Smirnoff Ice, which I can't drink to this day now because that is literally headache juice. Um, is that still on the go? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Really. I was I, I was drinking that the other day. I was drinking power shandies with Smirnoff Ice. Oh god. Oh my when you'd, god. You'd say, yeah. Half a beer, half a beer yeah. and then you you tip the tip the Smirnoff Ice in, and it basically is just like a shandy, but. Double the strength with like yeah. with like a shot of perfume in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, turbo shandies and snake bites. That's all I remember from. Oh yeah. Anyway, the last thing on our little list, and this is just a quick mention because it was it wasn't the busiest of weeks um, this week in the nineties, and this is just a little nod to the changing era, really, because this is on the eighteenth of March, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, Chelsea, who go on their way to win the Cup Winners' Cup that season, uh, they beat Valgorina of Norway 6-2 on Aragorn. And I'll just the team just sums up the changing era of the, of not just of the 90s but of Chelsea as well. And it was De Hoy, John Terry, a young John Terry, someone who's still playing and we could talk about them in the 90s. Michael Dubry, Bernard Lombard, which made me laugh there's someone we have never mentioned before. He scored in and the second he, leg. He did score in the second leg. Uh Graham Lasso, Dan Petrescu, Roberto Di Matteo, Dennis Wise, Celestine Babiaro, Torre Andre Flo and Gianluca Viali and then your names on the subs bench like Nichols and Newton Eddie Newton the first ever footballer I interviewed on my job as well Zola was on the bench Jody Morris and Kevin Mark Nichols I couldn't remember his first name then and Andy Myers so yeah that just stuck out of me I don't know what you guys think that the changing kind of the guard of the Premier League from these kind of especially at Chelsea where these you had these sort of up and coming youngsters that never quite made it against this European sort of backlash that came over from you know eclectic mix of, of players and did that stand out for you joe i just always remember you know of that era of chelsea um is lovejoy tim lovejoy used to say to me that he always thought that john harley was going to be the greatest yeah <laughs> one, of the, one of the greatest players in a chelsea shirt that you know he'd ever seen and he thought he was going to go on and go on and go on and of course that never really happened but chelsea were undergoing that massive sort of change weren't they at that time there was the battle between uh, matthew Hardin and ken bates over the club and lots of money going going in and everything and uh is that was viali in charge at this point um yeah it was because they won it didn't they he was the one that brought the um zola back into the fold wasn't he because he was kind of out in the cold for a little bit and he scored in the in the final as well so yeah, I mean, it was the it was the start of something for Chelsea that that cut runners cut win, wasn't it, Matthew? Yeah, I'm just thinking Chelsea was probably the club that epitomised that influx of yeah foreign stars more than more than any other really. Maybe maybe you could say Middlesbrough, but they, Middlesbrough sort of had that the two those two or three, but Chelsea it just seemed to be the whole team seemed to be uh, made up of, of European export or imports, didn't they? Just just naming that side there, it's like a who's who of the late 90s so uh, more so than any other club but yeah, fair play to them it obviously this was like the first there's there almost two re- uh, revolutions at Chelsea weren't there there was this one which then led the way for the one in 2004-05 with Abramovich that I think a lot of people forget that this Chelsea sort of did it the first time around in the in the late 90s early 2000s with the Rude Hullet and the like, and uh, well, I think Glenn sort of... Hoddle really lay all, yeah, all did. the yeah. Right there, it, didn't he? It, it, See, that's it's... when you look at it as the watershed moment. Because I think was it was it Portfield before Glenn Hoddle? Yeah. I'm probably getting my uh, timelines Dave, wrong. Dave Dave Webb Cam- in between Cam- Campbell. Oh, that was a bit earlier. It was 
Because Ian Porter yeah, was the first ever Premier League manager to be sacked. I remember that. Um, and I think yes. Dave Webb came and then Glenn Hoddle and then obviously... Uh, so Glenn Hoddle really sort of... Because they got to that cup final where United absolutely battered them 4-0. Yeah. And it was an easy yeah. 4-0 as well. 4-0 made Chelsea look good. And um, it, and then... But that was really the foundation. I just remember Glenn Hoddle after that game saying, oh, this is, this is the start of something. And, you know, Chelsea were kind of... And 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 a mid-table side, really. You know, occasional flirts with relegation. I mean, Middlesbrough relegated them in 1989, famously. Yeah, uh, that, pl- that playoff two-legged yeah, playoff. Yeah, when they used to do the playoffs, the when you did one playoffs, leg at one. Yeah. And the relegation playoffs. Yeah, we sent them down and we went up. And I think there's still yeah. some Middlesbrough Middlesbrough fans in Stamford Bridge who haven't been allowed to let be let out. After yeah. that it, it all kicked off that day, from what I remember. It went a very hairy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, that was you're right in what you're saying that Hoddle was the was the first sort of groundwork, and then you know that was when Ruth Hullock came and they brought in you know that level of player, and then Viali comes, and that's another step again. And, and and then that builds up to because you know there was talk that they were in real serious trouble before uh, Abramovich came. You know I think didn't they just sneak into the Champions League? Yeah, they places? beat Liverpool, didn't they? Yeah, in that famous. Yeah, yeah. So, and sort of that that and and then Abramovich comes in in that summer, and that's the whole history of that club is completely different. You know if that doesn't happen, they don't win the league the next year with Mourinho, and they, and they don't do it again, and there isn't a European Cup later on. Um, but yeah, you know all that groundwork sort of began in the 1990s and of course being a London club uh, they, were, they were much better place to attract those sort of players that you know unless you're Manchester United or Liverpool you're not particularly going to get mm. Yeah, gone are the names of Paul Furlong and Mark Steen and Robert Fleck by this point wasn't it? It's very much a multicultural Chelsea team so yeah I mean that was this week in the 90s as I said wasn't a terrible amount um, this week wasn't the busiest week in the 90s I'm sure we'll have busier but still some good chat there especially on Hooch as well um, guys where can people find you on the social network coming to you first Mr Joel Young uh, yeah Joel Baby Herc there's a picture of me sitting in Tom Jones chair oh, is that whose chair it is it was Tom Jones Tom chair Jones's yeah Tom chair oh, okay did you yeah I was, did you I, I was that allowed on I did choose Tom Jones' chair on purpose. Yes, Sir Tom Jones. Sir Tom Jones. Uh, yeah, I did want to sit in Sir Tom's seat, yeah. Mm. I thought I thought that was quite funny. I just blagged it. It turned out, this is quite funny, I wasn't going to... I went up and I was, I was like, can I go and sit on the chair? And they were like, oh, no, you can't. And I went, well, there's somebody sat there. And they went, yeah, that's the director of the show, being dead <laughs> sniffy. And I went, oh, is it Liz? <laughs> she turned around and it was my friend Liz and I was like Liz they said I can go and sit on the chair if you said so and she went yeah Joel can go up and sit on the chair that's fine and I had people looking daggers at me and I went and got my picture taken then I promptly got my phone taken off me by security because I wasn't meant to have my phone in the oh, studio God. lest I give away the secrets of the voice what happens to the chairs after the series Do you, are you allowed to tell us so is that a big secret do they get put in like after a the, big what, after the series yeah. they'll probably just get thrown in and set on fire somewhere I'd, I'd, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't know, but when I sat in the chair, there was no button. The buttons had vanished, oh. obviously, because it's, you know, the buttons have, have gone. Now we're getting into the knockout yep. stages. But um, yeah, it was good. No. First knockout this Saturday. Okay. So there you go. And what's your Twitter handle? That was the question. Joel Baby <laughs> There you go. And on Instagram. Um, and on Instagram. Matthew, where can people find you and all your plethora of articles? Well, I think he's outdone me there, don't you? He's driving Steve Coppel's car and now. Yeah, he's sitting in Tom Jones's yeah, yeah. We've heard it back to music as well, somehow. Trumpy once again. Um, yeah, at Matthew J. Christ, um, MatthewChrist.co.uk, articles for 
the likes of Sportsman, Football Whispers, and now the Sack Race. Good stuff. And follow the show at AK90s. Follow me if you want at Ashrose UK. Um, we'll be back next week for more this week in the 90s. But keep your device near you because this week coming, first of all, is our look at Inside Manchester United. And it's not just for Man United fans, trust me. It's the most bizarre piece of television you'll ever see. Just that's the only preview you're getting. Make sure you download the podcast and then watch the documentary afterwards when I post those links out. You can Google it anyway and watch it first, but still, look forward to that when it drops. I've been Ash Rose. This is Alive and Kicking. Until next time, keep it 90s. Alive and kicking.